thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, good morning. If you are new with us, my name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. And we are so glad that you have chosen to spend part of your weekend with us, whether it's online or whether you're gathering with us in person at our building this morning. The last several weeks, we have been working through a series on the Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Manifesto. And if we are just honest with ourselves, this is an incredible sermon. I mean, it's preached by Jesus himself, so there's no no reason it is uh, the most influential sermon and best sermon of all time. But also, over the last several weeks, you may have found yourself like me and realized that this sermon's actually really uncomfortable to read. It is uncomfortable because if we are honest with ourselves, a sermon like this rubs us the wrong way. It's like someone kicking a piece of sandpaper and kind of rubbing it on your arm or rubbing it on your leg. And you think, oh, that, that hurts. This is uncomfortable. And this sermon is, is kind of that way. Why? Because it shatters our ideas of the kingdom of God, how, how people thought Jesus would come. And he flips that upside down so that we see the upside down kingdom of Jesus and he comes in and he betrays the power systems of his day. Jesus, Jesus came in and, and, and he didn't go with the power structures and the power systems, but he came in and he betrayed them. But not only in that day, he, he's betrayed the power systems in our day as well. And, and this prompts us to reorder our lives and say, how are we to respond as Christ followers if this is the way that Jesus came? Now, Jesus' original hear, hearers, they would have been shocked by the fact that he was instructing them and the, and the teachings that he was also giving them at this early part of the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the thing. The fact was he was a teacher. He was, he was a rabbi of his day. He had called disciples out. He had not addressed the law yet. And that would have been really, really strange because one of the first things that a rabbi would have addressed was the law. So the fact that Jesus had started out teaching, he had showed that he was a, a new kind of king that was coming. He had gone over the characteristics and the beatitudes of how they were to live their lives. And, and then he came in and told them they were to be salt and light, but he still has not addressed the law. So that would have been really, really strange. Now, to us today, this doesn't sound so strange because we are lawless by nature. And so it doesn't sound strange at all. We, we kind of want to avoid the law and, and, and put the law in the background if we can. But his first hearers, his original audience, they were attempting to abide by the law by nature. And so for them, it would have been really strange to think, man, here's Jesus teaching and we're eating up every word he's saying, but he still hasn't even mentioned the law. Now, we are in a very different context today. Normally, a, a rabbi at this time to help kind of set this context, they would have collected sayings and interpretations of the law for many, many years. There are 630 plus instructions in the law, and they would have had interpretations for all of them. So just imagine like a commentary set. So here's all 630 plus instructions, and here's 630 commentaries on these instructions for how it is that you are to live your life. Now, today, we hear the law. We don't really struggle to understand it, but what do we do instead? We wanna to get to a manageable interpretation for the law in our lives. I mean, here's what I mean by that. We'll hear something like, do not commit adultery. And here's our response. Define adultery. We're always asking, how far can I go towards this thing you told me to not do? What, what is that line? Because our mentality is often, I want to go as far as I can. I want to get on the line or, or kind of teetering the line, so to speak, 
of what is acceptable and not acceptable with this thing that you've told me not to do. But we only do, we don't only do this with negative commands as far as do not do something. We do the same thing with positive commands. We'll hear something like, love your neighbor, and our response is, define my neighbor. Because Jesus had not entered the law yet, some would accuse him of denying the law by watching his life closely. So, so some of the other rabbis and, and people were critical of Jesus because one, he hadn't mentioned the law yet, and then they also were watching his lifestyle and said, man, this guy must not give a flip about the law. They watched him heal on the Sabbath, and they criticized him for doing that. Jesus didn't require his disciples to go through ceremonial washing before eating. Now, they weren't having the coronavirus, so if they were, hopefully Jesus would have required them to sit six feet apart and also wash their hands before they ate. But he didn't require them to go through the ceremonial washing before eating. And so they accused Jesus of being one who didn't care about the law. And once again, he's coming in, he's betraying the systems and the power structures of his day, and he's turning them upside down on their head. And what we see often is that people are offended by Jesus from a legalistic perspective. They're offended because Jesus isn't fitting nicely into this box that they have created within the religious system and structure. Instead, he's going outside that box and oftentimes around that box and doing something entirely different and is rocking people's world. They cannot wrap their mind around it and go, how is it that he teaches so eloquently? How is it he does these things but yet he is not remaining within our power system and our power structure of the religious leaders and rulers of our day. So this morning, we're going to look at the messianic kingdom in relation to the law. So go ahead, and if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, or if you have the app on your phone, go ahead and open the app and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to spend our time this morning in verses 17 through 20. And what we're going to see is we're going to see an explanation of how Jesus and the kingdom fulfill the law of Moses. Now, this these few verses this morning, they're actually really key to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount and the whole of Jesus' ministry. The, the paragraph that we're going to look at today, it's, it's one I think if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you would just read through it and just keep on going. You wouldn't necessarily stop and pause. But it's very important for the definition of what is Christian righteousness, but also for it throws um, interpretation and light. It kind of shows how the Old Testament and New Testament actually work together and how Jesus came to fulfill both of them. So we see this relationship between the law of the Old Testament and the gospel of the New Testament. And we're going to see that's divided into two parts. The first couple of verses we'll look at will show us how Christ and the law work together. And then the second part we'll see is how Christians, us, and the law work together. Now this paragraph, because I really don't want us to miss this this week, this paragraph is so important that many biblical scholars actually consider this passage to be one of the most pristine expressions of the gospel in the entire New Testament. And so if you were going to point to any passage, you know, prior to studying this this week, this is not one of, this would not have been one of my go-to passages. I would have not have said, man, if you really want to understand the gospel, go to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. But as I've studied this week and I've got a clear understanding and I realized Man, this is one of the most pristine and clearest expressions of the gospel in the entire New Testament. So here's what we're going to do this morning. If you're taking notes, this is where you can jot this down. Our main purpose is to answer two questions. So if you're wondering kind of what direction we're going to go, it's two questions that we're going to try to answer this morning. The first question is, what is Jesus' relationship with the law and the prophets? 
We're going to see how does, how does Jesus relate to this? Because many people, once Jesus came, we get to the New Testament, they want to throw out the Old Testament. They want to throw out the law altogether and say, we're done with that. Jesus has arrived. And, you know, almost we can just cut off that whole portion of the Bible. And the second question, as we look at the answer to Jesus' relationship to the law and the prophets, it will prompt us to say, then what then is our ongoing relationship with the law and the prophets? So let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll get to our text this morning. God, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for another opportunity to gather as your church. God, it's been an interesting year, and uh, really we've got to scatter more than we have gotten to gather, and that's part of the church as well. But God, we are thankful for the opportunity, whether it's online this morning, whether it is in the Organ Stamp Society building that we use. Either way, God, that we are able to be your church and gather as your people. God, I ask this morning that you would move me out of the way and that your word would be made clear. And God, how it is that the law and the gospel work together. And God, how it is that you came, you sent Jesus, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and help us grasp that clear understanding of the pristine nature of the gospel. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, go ahead and look with me as we answer this question. So what is the relationship of the law and the prophets in relation to Jesus? So let's look at Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18 to start. It says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We're going to stop there. So when you, think, when you hear the word law in the, in the New Testament, it's, it's referring to uh, what's also known as the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then while the prophets refer to the rest of the Old Testament, all of which was held to be written by prophets, of, of kind of foretelling the coming of Jesus. So then we see Jesus comes in with the gospel of the kingdom here in the New Testament. And he does not replace the Old Testament as many thought he would do, but he actually comes in and he fulfills the Old Testament. And how does he fulfill it? He fulfills it with his life and his ministry. And he couples that with his interpretation. And he completes and clarifies God's intent and meaning of the entire Old Testament. And so you think about the Old Testament was saying, here's what's going to be coming. Jesus arrives and it's like he takes that missing puzzle piece and he fits it in. And you can now see this clear picture of this is what we've been longing for. This is what we've been waiting for. And now it has arrived. Now, let's think about the law for a moment, how Jesus came presenting the law. So Jesus comes in. So imagine walking with Jesus and, and you're one of his early followers. And Jesus says, do not commit adultery. And now our response would be like, uh, yeah, check. That's, that's a good law. I, I, I think, yeah, we should not commit adultery. But then Jesus comes back in. He says, but wait a minute. Don't be so quick to agree with me. Because he says, whoever has lust in his heart is also guilty of adultery. And I can see our response being like, uh, what? Dang, are you serious? Like, come on, Jesus. I mean, yeah, maybe there's some stuff in my heart occasionally or something in my eyes, but really, like, that's going to be the same as adultery? Like, no way. Jesus comes in and says, okay, let me try again. Do not murder. Oh, that's an easy one. Like, yeah, murder is wrong. That's clear. We should not murder. Jesus comes back and says, wait a minute. Don't be so quick to agree with me. Anyone who calls his brother a fool in his heart and has hatred towards him, has committed murder. I'm like, dang, does, 
Does that include my online social media post? I mean, occasionally I might just call someone a fool and I said, man, they're stupid. You know, have you, have you seen what they're posting about the election or have you seen that they're not wearing masks or have you seen they're, they're going to these super spreader events? And, and like, does that include my online post, Jesus? Is, is that still the equivalent of calling my brother fool and having hatred towards him in my heart? The answer lies within Jesus himself. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And Jesus tells us that the law will last until every part is fulfilled. He tells us also that it's easier for a continent to disappear. Imagine an entire continent. He said it's easier for the continent to disappear before God's word would disappear. In other words, what Jesus is telling us is that God's word is permanent. It's, it's here to stay. It's not going to go away. Some have tried to get rid of God's word in different countries, but it is still here. This is the view that Jesus had. Jesus' view was that every word in the Bible is inspired. Every single word. Even down to the smallest detail. Now, when we see this idea of, of to fulfill, or, or we might today say to complete, means that history itself has come to fulfillment in Jesus. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation, and in his teachings. So church, I want you to listen in with me for a minute. We must consider the mind-numbing claim by Jesus here. Jesus is claiming that he fulfills in a salvation, historical, theological, and moral manner what the Torah and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, anticipated and predicted and preliminarily taught. Jesus said, I fulfilled all of that. So if you've ever been reading through the Old Testament, you think, what in the world is this talking about? And I don't understand this. And what is this thing that's going to come? Jesus said, I came and I fulfilled all of that. What kind of person makes these claims? You know, if you want to walk around saying, man, I fulfilled all the, all the Old Testament, we'd laugh at you. But Jesus came so imagine, once again, his original audience, we're, we're used to it because we're studying the Bible week in and week out, and we say, hey, we're followers of Jesus, but you got to think of his original audience, even his disciples. Can you imagine that they, they all believe? They, I'm sure they, they're going, man, I've got some doubts here. Like, Jesus, we, we believe you're a good teacher, and, and we're following you, and we see that you're not really doing anything wrong, but really, you came to fulfill all of it, and, and you accomplished all of it? This would be baffling to his original audience. It's one thing for Jesus to come and say, I can do miracles as mighty as Elijah. And they would watch him do miracles and say, we agree with that. It's another thing for Jesus to come in and say, I can predict the future as clearly as Isaiah. And they would predict some things. They say, okay, Jesus, we can get on board with that. Or he could he said, I can come in and do miracles as, as astounding as Moses. Okay, Jesus, we've watched you do miracles as astounding as Moses. We agree with all those things. But it's altogether a different claim for Jesus to come in and say that he himself fulfills the Torah and the prophets. But that's literally the claim that Jesus is making here. And if this is true, which as Christ followers and sojourn church, we believe this is true. But if this is true, nothing in history would ever be the same. No one else could claim that they came and fulfilled all of the Old Testament, but Jesus did. And so this would change the entire course of history. Because you think about the Torah, it had come to its goal by now taking on the face of Jesus. So the Torah had this goal and now the goal has been accomplished. The goal we come to understand in Jesus is the central story of the Bible. So if you've ever thought, man, what is the central story of the Bible? From I'd say from Old Testament and New Testament, from page one to the ending, from the first stroke of a pen to the last stroke of a pen, it's all about Jesus. 
Jesus is our central character. That's why when you read scripture, you always need to be asking, what is this saying about God? What is this teaching me about God? Because it's all about Jesus from front to end. This whole grand narrative, someone say a meta narrative of scripture, it's all about Jesus. And what did Jesus tell us here? Jesus said, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, none of this will pass away. None of this is just going to be discarded. None of this is going to be thrown into the fire pit or to the trash bin. He says, not a single letter or part of a letter will pass away until all of it has been fulfilled. And so what does this mean? This means that the fulfillment will not be complete until heaven and earth themselves have passed away. For one day they will pass away in a mighty rebirth of the universe. And then when that happens, time as we know it will cease and the written word of God's law will no longer be needed for all things would have been fulfilled in Jesus. And so the law is as enduring as the universe and the final fulfillment of the one and the new birth of the other will coincide. In other words, both will pass away together. And Jesus could not have stated it more clearly than his own view of the Old Testament of scripture. And so quite literally looking to Jesus means following him and through him, the Torah. So let me ask you this church this morning. What is your view of the Bible? What is your view of the Bible? What about when you get into your Bible reading plan, which I highly recommend, whether it's at the beginning of the year or you start right now, because uh, you know if you don't have a plan to do something, you might say, hey, I'm gonna go to the grocery store with no plan, and you end up walking in circles and leaving with nothing or leaving with stuff you don't need. So I recommend having a Bible reading plan. It kind of helps just keep you grounded in God's word. But what happens that when you read that Bible reading plan and you make it to Leviticus, and you think, okay, I believe every word of the Bible is true, and it's it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but God, what in the world is going on in, in Leviticus? But yes, that too is inspired word of God. And so in a really real way, I really want you here to this church. So pay attention to the screen if you're watching online. Um, quiet the kids down. But this is really what I want you to hear. In a real way, we don't get to know the fullness of Christ until we get to know and love the writings he came to fulfill. Let me say that again in case you missed it. In a very real way, we don't get to know the fullness of Christ. You might say, man, I'm pursuing Jesus. I want to know him more. We don't get to know the fullness of Christ until we get to know and love the writings that he came to fulfill. Anytime someone tells me that I'm just not hearing from the Lord, I'm just, I'm struggling spiritually. One of my first questions is how much time are you spending reading his word? Now, I'm not implying God doesn't speak other ways. I'm not implying that God doesn't impress things upon our hearts and, 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 and call us to do things apart from reading his word. But what we must not neglect, church, is that he gave us his word, the Bible, as a primary means of speaking to us. In other words, God gave you a way that he'll speak to you every single day, whether it's morning, afternoon, or night. You just have to open it up or open the app and read it that God has spoken to us. And so if you're wondering, man, why am I not hearing from the Lord? Why am I struggling spiritually? I would say start out and go, am I reading God's word? Because that's where God is going to speak to me. And so church, read the word, reflect on the word, and cherish the word, and live by God's word. Now, the early church would have considered it heresy, yet many of us today will try to get around and just pick and choose what we believe and follow about the Bible. We'll say, you know, I'm going to skip these parts because they're a little outdated. You know, Jesus didn't live in 2020. Jesus didn't live in the city of Portland. Jesus didn't live in a, an extremely political correct context. And so uh, I don't think Jesus would have put this in here. I'm just going to take these parts out of the Bible. 
or we're just never we're never gonna address these certain issues. By the way, that's why we like to preach verse by verse and we're going through different portions of scriptures, entire books of the Bible, because it forces us to dig deep into God's word and see what it is that God actually wants to say on an issue. And so many of us today, though, many, many people in the, in the church will do that. But this is what it says here in this passage. It says, not a dot, not an iota will be erased until it is all fulfilled. So that begs the question, how then did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? There's three ways that I believe he fulfilled it. The first way, Jesus fulfilled its longings and he fulfilled its predictions. If you read the Old Testament, there's a prophetic undercurrent that runs throughout all of it. For 400 years, yes, 400 years, they are told one day, one will come. And the good news is that he does. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus talking with his, his disciples, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, just imagine with me for a minute. Can you imagine being part of that Bible study? Like, we've all been to Bible studies before, but imagine that Jesus himself is the one who's leading the Bible study. And so you're, you're having a Bible study. This is after Jesus is resurrected. And so you've already watched him go to the cross and die. Now he's back. He, he says, let's have a Bible study. And so I can see Jesus kind of gather, gathering his disciples saying, guys, come here, come in. Genesis 3, it's about me. And disciples kind of scratch and think, where? I don't see it say Jesus there. You know, there's this part where this dude stands on the serpent's head. That's me. And Jesus said, how about this? Remember the part where there was a, they needed a sacrificial offering? Oh yeah, Jesus, remember that part? That's me. Remember King David? He was, he was a total mess. I'm the new and better David, and I'm not a total mess. And he walks them all the way through, and I can just hear the disciples going, how did we miss it all along? It was always you. It was always pointing towards you. And so we see this longing in the law of the Old Testament and Jesus comes and he fulfills them. The second way that, that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament as he comes in, he fulfills the standards of the Old Testament. There are 248 commands and 365 prohibitions and Jesus lives it. Jesus, who's absolutely human and tempted in every single way that we are, but always kept the spirit of the law even as a teenager. Here's what I mean by that. When I hear that Jesus kept the spirit of the law, that he never sinned, I think we always think of Jesus in his, his early 30s, right before he goes to the cross. And we think, okay, maybe he can make it six months a year. But imagine from birth, imagine those toddler years. You know, your toddler ever, you just think, man, uh, we don't, we're not in the toddler stage anymore, praise God, but our youngest, five years old, and just always getting into something and breaking things and thinking, what, what are you doing? That Jesus never sinned. But I think about the teenage years. Do you seriously think that Jesus was never tempted by girls? Really? Like, it says he was tempted every way that we were. How about the back talk to Mary? I mean, I can just hear this, this, this conversation right now where, where Mary's saying something, and but what, would Jesus never stop in and say, but mom, I do know more than you, right? Jesus, Jesus had the authority. Jesus could do that, but he never sinned, and so he didn't back talk his mom. You think Jesus was never, seriously never tempted to slack off at work? I mean, if Jesus could do miracles, I've been thinking like, I'm not going to work this shift for a few hours and then snap of a finger, all the work's going to be done. But he never did that, even though he was tempted in that way. And the third way that Jesus fulfills the law is he fulfilled its requirements. What do I mean by that? When Jesus goes to the cross, he fulfills the sacrifice. Yes, it required a sacrifice, 
for sin that is required in the Old Testament sacrificial system of the shedding of his own blood to fulfill its requirements once and for all. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there would be the shedding of the blood, an innocent lamb, and, and Jesus came and fulfilled that once and for all so that we no longer have to do animal sacrifices. If we're still in the Old Testament today, we would be having to go out and, 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 and kill goats and kill lambs and, and take them onto the altar and shed it, their blood. But Jesus came in and let his own blood be shed so that we no longer had to do that. This makes me think of the lyrics of a Matt Papa song. Matt Papa, the worship leader in Nashville, Tennessee. The song says, The earth shook and trembled. The sun bowed its head. The veil of the temple was opened for men. As Jesus went down in the cold of the grave, defeated the darkness when he overcame. The keys of the kingdom were placed into his hands of children and priests and of fishers of men. Through all generations, his voice will be heard. Creation resounds of victorious words. It is finished, it is done. To the world, salvation comes. Hallelujah, we're alive. Hell was silenced when you cried. It is finished, it is done. Now completed the work of love. Hallelujah, he's alive. And so we see that Jesus came in and he fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament once and for all so that we could all declare it is finished, it is done. So then this brings us to that second question. If Jesus did all of that, and we see Jesus' relationship to the law and the prophets and how he fulfilled the Old Testament law, that brings us to the second question. How then are we today to create to, to treat the law and the prophets in our lives as Christ followers? Let's look at verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So since Jesus has come not to abolish the law as we thought he would, but to fulfill the law, and because he tells us not an iota or not a dot will pass away until the law has been fulfilled, then the greatness in the kingdom of God will be measured by conformity to the law. Now, what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day in order to make obedience and the law more attainable is, is they were coming in and they were restricting the commandments and extending the permissions of the law. And so they were kind of basically finding ways to cut out parts of it and finding ways to get around it and still look very holy as if they're following the law. And so basically they made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more per permissive to fit their lifestyle. Now, what does Jesus come in? Jesus comes in and he reverses both tendencies. And so in the same way, as a manner of practicing the ways of Jesus today, which is what we're called to do as apprentices of Jesus, is we must follow the example of Christ and not that of the scribes and Pharisees. I think most oftentimes when we read stories and we see the scribes and Pharisees, we always think we're the good guys. We always think, man, that's not us. Honestly, most of the time we are the Pharisees. Most of the time we are the scribes. We have all this head knowledge. And we find ways to kind of twist and turn and make the law more permissive and the demands less demanding. But as Christ followers who are attempting to practice the ways of Jesus, we are not to do that, but we are instead to follow the example of Christ. What does this mean? This means we don't have the freedom to lower the standards of the law in order to make them more easier to obey. We can't say, well, we're in 2020, we live in Portland, we live in a politically correct climate, and so we're going to lower the standards and demands of the law. No, we are not to do that. We don't have permission to do that. This is the fallacy of the Pharisees, not of Christians. I, I won't go into details, but I was uh, 
hanging out with another pastor here just recently in the city, and he was just telling me kind of the direction that they're headed. And it really concerned me because some of the things he was telling me is them lowering the demands of the law and changing things to fit the context and lifestyle of Portland. And I think, no, when I look at this passage, it just smacks me in the face. It says, you can't do that. This is what the Pharisees do, not what Christ followers do. And so then we are also told in these verses, just Christians' righteousness must exceed Pharisaic righteousness. Jesus goes even further. He says, not only is greatness in the kingdom assessed by a righteousness which conforms to the law, but entry into the kingdom is impossible without a conformity, much better conformity than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, for God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Now, Jesus' original audience, and even us, if you know much about the scribes and Pharisees, this should actually cause us to groan and, and almost complain and go like, what? You can't really require that, can you? People would have grown at the thought of being better than the scribes and the Pharisees because the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the law, they wrote the commentaries on the law, and they followed the law better than anyone else. Even with them lowering its demands and making it more permissive, they still followed the version of the law they followed better than anyone. And so now Jesus is saying, my followers must come in and follow it better than both of these groups. So how then can Christian righteousness actually exceed Pharisaic righteousness? And how can this superior Christian righteousness be made a condition of entering God's kingdom? I mean, when you, when you hear that, you think, man, that sounds like, like, like work-based salvation. That sounds like we have to follow these, this set of commands and do everything exactly how it's laid out, or, or we don't get into the kingdom of God. And so our, our Lord's statement must have naturally astonished his first hearers, but I think it astonishes us today as we hear this. I think, wait a minute, is this teaching something that, that I didn't sign up for? Now, in order to understand this and what he means by this, we must understand the nature of the law. So there are three types of laws that were given. And the first is the civic law. Now, this is the law that was spoken to Israel and basically how they are to live as a nation. Now, we can't fully follow this law because we aren't the nation of Israel. But we do see some common principles that do apply to every single one of us in civic law. The second type of law is a ceremonial law. This is a law about the sacrificial system. So we obey the ceremonial law by refusing to keep it. We obey the ceremonial law by believing in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. Let me say that again. We obey the ceremonial law by refusing to keep it. Yes, I said that. We obey the ceremonial law by believing in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. So going back to the Old Testament and the sacrifice that was required for the appeasement of sins, that we follow this law by refusing to keep it because we trust in the sufficiency that it is finished in Jesus. And the third type of law is the moral law. Now, this is the law that you primarily think of the Ten Commandments when you hear it. Jesus later actually will summarize that in this sermon. He'll say, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And so we must submit to this law today as God's people. The second thing we must understand for us is the purpose of the law. Psalm 119 tells us this. So the law is like a lamp guiding us through this life. So once again, we looked at the, the idea of light last week, but I think about going on a dark path, especially now with it getting dark so early and that we maybe take a flashlight with us, a lantern, and that it, it helps light the way of the path that we're going. We're told here that the law is, is similar. It's like a lamp that's guiding us through this life. And so the law is there for your condemnation. The law is there to damn you. The law is there to condemn you. It's, the law is there to give you its requirements to show you that you can't do it. If this is a requirement, then you are done. And so the law, what it does, is it draws out a longing 
for God himself. It draws out a longing for a savior, the only one who could come and truly fulfill the law. Third is we must pursue greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. Church, we must. We can't read the words of Jesus and conclude that it doesn't matter how we live. I think sometimes we get so hung over on grace, which I've told you last week, I'm a grace guy, but we go so far into grace that we think, man, it just doesn't matter how I live. I'll just go live out, live recklessly. I'll go do whatever it is I want to do. I'll go ahead and commit adultery and I'll go ahead and, and, and get drunk on the weekend. I'll go ahead and do all these things because it doesn't really matter. I've got, I've got grace. But no, that's not what Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us it actually does matter how we live. And so a text like this, what it should do, instead of causing us to posture and go, I'll do whatever the heck it is I want to do, it should instead motivate us to go and live a radical, countercultural lifestyle, something that looks entirely different than the world around us. And church, you want to know how it is that we are going to grow as a church? Do you want to know? I need you to listen in on this part. Through prayer and a radical commitment to the holiness as we desire to reflect Jesus and not our culture. So let me say that again, because we always want to go, how is it we're going to grow as a church? Here's how we're going to grow. We're going to grow both wider and deeper, I guess deeper, (laughs) by doing this as a church. Through prayer and a radical commitment to the holiness as we desire to reflect Jesus and not our culture. And so church, how then do we respond? We respond by resting in the provided greater righteousness of Jesus Christ. Who could live with greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus. Okay, this is the Sunday school answer. Jesus. And so what does this cause us to do, church? This should cause us to breathe a sigh of relief, kind of just kind of relax on the couch or in the recliner, go like, man, the fulfillment of the law is fulfilled in Jesus. The righteousness that Jesus has in mind here is a righteousness that is already done. It's already been completed on our behalf. And as we read the Bible, we are challenged to be better than non-followers because we're marked by a greater righteousness, a righteousness that is already ours and his. It has already been done, church. We just have to grasp it. And so in sum, this passage teaches us followers of Jesus are called to both teach and to do what Jesus teaches. And through following Jesus, they are to do what the Torah and the prophets reveal. I want to finish by reading a quote from R. Kent Hughes, who has an excellent commentary in the book of Matthew. He says, Christ in transience, his hard, unbending words were actually full of grace. When he said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He was speaking as kindly as he ever spoke, for he was explaining the most dramatic terms, the impossibility of salvation apart from his grace. And so church, this is good news. So the law stands, but the law has been fulfilled. And so my advice to us this morning is to run to Christ, enjoy his grace, and pursue a greater righteousness. And so before I pray, we're going to have an opportunity to respond. We always respond to worship. Uh, Ben's going to come back up and lead us in a, a final song. So I want you to reflect on this message. Reflect on how the, the law and Jesus work together. Reflect on how we are to live in light of the law and, and Jesus' fulfillment of the law. And so as we continue, we're going to respond in worship. But maybe this morning you're tuning in and you need to respond to salvation. Maybe you realize this morning as you heard about the law and Jesus' relationship to it that you can't do it. Maybe you're sick and tired of life and, and 2020 and you're just trying to find hope in something, but something else other than Jesus. You're just trying to find salvation in something else or someone else and that this morning you say, I just want to give it up, Lord. 
I just want to give it to you. And so this morning, I would invite you to respond by giving your life over to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I recognize that you have fulfilled the requirements of the law that I can never do and that I am a sinner and I'm in need of you and I want to trust in you, Jesus, in your name, amen. And so if you would like to do that this morning, obviously if you're in person, then you're hearing this live and please come find me and talk to me. I'll walk you through that. If you're online this morning, type that into the chat bar. We can go into a private chat. We can we can discuss that. If you're local to Portland, I'd love to grab coffee with you this week. And if you're not local to Portland, then we can just chat and email. I'd love to get you connected to some people in your area of the country. And so church, let me pray for us and then we'll respond. God, we looked this morning how Jesus, you came and you fulfilled the law. A lot of times we, we look at the requirements of the law and we think that they're just completely thrown out in the New Testament that you came. But Jesus, really you came not to abolish the law, but fulfill the law. And that our relationship to the law is that we can't fulfill its requirements, God. We are to abide by the law, but we can't fulfill its requirements. We will always fall short, always fall short. But it shows us our continuous need for you and for your righteousness. The one who came who was sinless, who lived that perfect life, who died the death that every single one of us deserved and then raised again to new life so that you could declare that it is finished. And so Jesus, we thank you for your grace in our lives. I ask that you would call people to salvation this morning. I ask that you would renew a passion for you for those of us who already follow you, Jesus, and that we as a church would pursue a greater righteousness because of your righteousness, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.